every hymn that we sing, and this one has its own story. Uh, this hymn was first uh, published in 1915 by a fellow by the name of Franklin Shepard, and it was done, as you could imagine, for the Presbyterian Sunday School program for kids. But there's another story behind that story, and the real author is a Presbyterian minister by the name of Maltby Babcock. Great name, huh? Uh, he lived near Niagara Falls, just outside of Lockport, New York, and he would have this habit. Now, if you know anything about that area, anybody here from the Northeast know that area? Okay, we got a guy here in the back that knows what I'm talking about. So Lockport is so near Niagara Falls, it's the escarpment that kind of looks down at Lake Ontario. So you got these big, giant cliffs. We've tried to picture it here, and huge forests and valleys. It's just a beautiful place from a natural setting. And the way the story goes, according to Maltby's wife, whenever he would go out hiking, which was one of his favorite pastimes, he would say, I'm going to see my father's world. And he would carry with him a journal. And as he walked outside, he would write these poems about what he saw. And he recorded it in this private journal that was just his. He went to be with the Lord in 1901, about 14 years before this song was actually published in the Sunday School program's hymnal. Uh, and what his wife did after his death was she found the journal and all these poems that he had written, and she had a person take it and put it together and publish it as poetry. Well, Franklin Shepard happened to be a friend of the family, and he became aware of the poetry and asked permission of Maltby's wife if he could put music to this song. It's, it's an old English folk song that pre-existed the writing of the poetry, and then he adapted Maltby's poetry uh, basically to this song. And in doing that, as most singer-songwriters will do for kids, they'll reduce the number of lines. So Maltby's poem was actually 16 stanzas, four lines each, each of the 16 stanzas starting with the words, this is my father's home. Uh, Franklin reduced it down to what we've just sung. Three stanzas, eight lines uh, in it. So it, 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 to me, really struck a chord with me. I mentioned to you, I was sitting on my back porch. This was playing in the background without the words. And I noticed, I don't know who it was, but somebody couldn't help themselves, and they started singing while Jason was up here. I don't know if you caught that or not. Uh, I found myself singing some of those words in my own mind as I sat there, like I, I, I remembered the words, and it began me to think about just how important it is what we sing. And uh, one of the great things that I respect about Jason so much is his choice of songs and the time that he takes to ensure that what we are singing when we're bringing it into our mind is, is very consistent with the Word of God. So let's look briefly at those three stanzas. I want to suggest that we can draw from that three big ideas that might be an encouragement to us. So in each of these stanzas, if you follow along here, if we could put that slide, there we go. So each stanza kind of has two of those four-line segments that Maltby originally wrote. So I want to note that, and each of the four lines begins with, this is my father's world. Now, what I want to suggest to you in this first stanza, he, he makes an emphasis about listening, right? So there's this idea that he hears God in creation, 
and that that's an important point for Maltby. The second thing is it, it says here, I rest me in the thought. So there's this idea that he is thinking of God as he is looking at this creation and writing this poem. I would make this simple observation. You could sum it up by saying creation speaks of God to everyone. Is that a biblical idea? That's what I want to look at with you this morning to encourage you that it is and is very, very central to what we know and believe about the Bible. Second of these stanzas, same kind of an approach. In this particular case, he talks about praise. You know, it's this idea that not only is creation praising God, but he's joining in that praise before God. And then he suggests that, look at that last line, he speaks to me everywhere. I mean, there's this idea that no matter where Maltby is, he is actually hearing God speak to him in this creation that he sees around him. It's a pretty big idea, I think, from a theology point of view, and I would sum it up to say creation praises God, and he speaks in it to us. This is something I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes and outline for you this morning as we work through a couple of texts. Third stanza, the same, just simply making the observation here. He says in that last line, God is ruler yet. There's this idea that as we remember God in his creation, we are reminded of his sovereignty and how he rules. And then finally, he says that the Lord is king, let the heavens ring. And he proceeds that with this question, why should my heart be sad? Kind of an easy thing to say, but I don't know how it is for you. For me at times, when I'm dealing with an issue in my life, like my whining, as Patty would say, about this knee replacement, I'm more thinking about me than I am the fact that I have hope beyond that in God. So I just sum up this third one with, for me, what matters in this theological conversation I want to have with you this morning as we're coming into this holiday season, and that is this. When we are focused on God and we have opportunity to look at his creation around us, if we actually stop and think, our troubles fade because we see something bigger and greater than us. And in that, in some special way, I can be glad. Now, I have this slide here that kind of sums up each of those individual statements just so you can see them all in one place. I think about that when I, when I look at these statements. I hear you, I think of you, I join creation in praising you, for you are with me. I remember you rule in all things. I place my hope in you alone. I mean, it's, it's an amazing storyline that should be an encouragement to us. So three things that I'm summing up from these three stanzas. Creation speaks of God to everyone, praises God, and in it he speaks to us. And then finally, uh, my troubles fade. Well, I want to take a look at two texts with you this morning to kind of pick up from uh, where uh, we were a couple of weeks ago when I introduced this idea of what the New Testament writers think about the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament and how they use the Old Testament to actually explain and validate what it is they are saying about the gospel. And to do that, I, I want to start with this quote from A.W. Tozer. He's a fellow that lived in the mid-1900s. He grew up in rural Pennsylvania without much uh, attended an evangelistic meeting in Ohio and came to faith and ultimately 
become a pastor. A couple things I want to note about him. Prolific writer. If you have never read uh, Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I would just recommend it to you. It has got great reflections on God's sovereignty and his blessing of us in that sovereignty. The last thing I'll note about him, if, if it is an encouragement to you, is Tozer has a sixth grade education. Uh, so the word of God impacted in a man's life is not necessarily about how much education he has, but how great his love is for God and how deep it goes. Uh, so here's what Tozer says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why don't you just reflect on that for a minute. Think about yourself when you came in here this morning and Jason and the music team began to play music and you sang a song. Did you just rotely go through the song? Did you stop for a moment and think about the words? Did the song take your mind towards your relationship with Christ or to God? These are those kinds of things that Tozer is suggesting. The second thing he says, man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than the idea of God. No religion has ever been greater than their idea of God. Think about that for a minute as it relates to the nation of Israel. Their high points and their low points. When they were following God, they, they, they were involved in his presence. And when they strayed from him, they suffered his judgment. Tozer's dealing with that. Third thing, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Tozer's view here is even when we come to church to worship, that doesn't guarantee that we commune with God. We may come because it's a tradition and we just attend. What Tozer's suggesting is true worship is when your heart and mind are united with a holy God and his spirit speaks to you in it. So that's a little bit of a backdrop from a perspective of how we want to take a look at this text. So if if you don't mind, open your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 1. I want to use the letter of Romans to kind of illustrate an answer to these three questions in this little song that we sang. And if you were here a few weeks ago, I took the first 17 verses of Romans to just remind you that Paul establishes a very specific purpose in why he writes this letter to the Romans. Let me just review it quickly with you again. If you look in the first four verses of Romans 1 as Paul opens his letter to these Christians living in this metropolis of Rome of well over a million people, he says this, that I'm writing because I want you to know the gospel. And he, he identifies that the gospel is God's gospel. It comes from God. It wasn't something man invented. It's actually something that we are given from the master creator. In verse 2, he says that we see this gospel in what he describes as the holy scriptures. Now, for the people of this time, the holy scriptures are Moses' writing, the Psalms, and the prophets' writing. So he's referencing what we would today call the Old Testament. But there's a second thing that Paul notes about these holy scriptures, and that is in the prophets, which we're about to get into in this next section of cover to cover in this series, is that it's in the prophets that we actually see Jesus and we learn about the gospel. Paul acknowledges this to these folks when he says that. In verse 3, he says there's something very specific about this gospel. It's about a person, and that person is called the very Son of God. 
He says that in verse 3. And then finally, he says, we know this gospel through something he calls power, God's power. And we see God's power in the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus has died and God has brought him back to life, which makes God the author of life. That's the idea that Paul lays out here in Romans 1. In verses 5 through 15, he adds some personal commentary about that. And like Paul writes often, he will make a statement that's profound. He'll lead off on a couple of rabbit trails and talk about some related things. And then he'll come back and restate what he has said at the beginning so that you don't miss it. Now, he may restate it in a little bit of a different way, but principally, it is the same. He does that in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 1. And if you look at verse 15 in the first part of 16, he says two things about his own perspective on the gospel. He says, I'm eager to give it to you. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. And the last time that I spoke with you, I suggested that you you can be not ashamed of the gospel, but be silent about it. That's a question of our own faithfulness in it. Paul says you need both. You need to be certain of the gospel, you know, not ashamed of it, and yet you need to be eager that this is the word of life. This is what you can share with others. Paul begins summing up his intro comments with that idea, and then he says that in the second part of verse 16, if you look there, he says that this gospel is the power of God. Remember back in verse 4, he says that we get the gospel with power by the resurrection of Jesus. He's just basically restating what he has said in verse 4, but this time he says that there's an ultimate purpose, and it is for our saving. He said it's the power of God for salvation, and he identifies that our only role in it is to believe God. He brings it to us. We simply believe in it. And then in verse 17, he uses an Old Testament prophet, Malachi, in chapter 2, verse 4 of Malachi, and he makes this statement, in it, that would be the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So in the gospel, we see God's holiness. We understand God's holiness, and that is a matter of faith. He says from faith to faith. So this is how Paul starts Romans. Now, as he builds out the the rest of the letter to the Romans, it is all about the gospel. And he takes the gospel detail by detail to drill it into the folks so that they understand. Now, what I want you to do is look at the very next two verses, verses 18 and 19. I mentioned this hymn we just had sung to us by Jason makes the statement that creation speaks of God to everyone. Is that true? How do do we get there? Well, look at 18 and 19 in chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. There's that revelation word again that he used in verse 17. And it is against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He says here that there are these men. Doesn't define the identity of these men. He just says that if a man is not abiding by God, he's ungodly. If a man doesn't know the holiness of God, if he is unrighteous, God is against him. It says God's wrath is against him. Uh, We're going to move to Romans chapter 3 in a moment and revisit what we looked at three weeks ago. This is pretty straightforward from a Pauline kind of explanation. Here's Here's the thing I want you to take away from this. Look how he ends verse 19. That which is known about God is evident to them. 
That which is known about God is evident to them. We need to make some sense of that phrase because Paul's making a claim here that even the ungodly, even the people that are at odds with God, have some evidence that they have to understand that God exists. Where do we see that? Well, look in verse 20. Verse 20, Paul says, for since the creation of the world, for since the creation of the world, that's language of in the beginning God created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, since the creation of the world, well, what do we know since the creation of the world? We know three things. We know God's invisible attributes. We know God's eternal power. And Paul says we know God's divine nature. These three things, he identifies as three things that are clearly seen. Now, that idea of clearly seen, meaning you can't make a mistake. It's obvious. It's in your face. You can't walk away from it. And he says here it's understood through what has been made. So here we are, we can understand God's attributes, his power, and his divine nature simply by looking at what he has made, you know, the very creation. And he finishes his sentence with really the claim of the text, and that is no one is, no one is excused from that. All men would understand that. Now this, these three verses together are in a theological term, what we call natural revelation. So God reveals himself in nature, in his creation. That's what this hymn that we have used as a backdrop this morning is speaking to. And that in that, Paul says every human being ever, from the beginning of time to now to the future, has embedded in their DNA that God put in them an understanding that he exists. Now, that's a pretty big idea because you can go to someone that maybe isn't a believer, but they'll accept that there is a God and there's a connection perhaps where you can have a conversation about what that looks like. But this text says, even if I have a philosophical bent that I say there is no God, I am an atheist. Paul says in the deep part of their heart, they know that God exists. That's natural revelation. I'd sum it up this way. All men know God exists and God accepts no excuse otherwise. Now what I wanna do is take the second part of that now and look at these three things, his attributes, his power, and his divine nature. And to do that, we need to pause for a minute and say, so when the text says attributes, what, is, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of words that we apply. You know, most theologians will come up with 14 or 15 different words to identify God's attributes. I've just listed eight or nine of them on the screen here so that you can see. In most cases, they fall into two categories. Some of God's attributes describe to us who he is. And other attributes of God talk to us about how he acts. So when I take a look at God's eternal nature, the fact that he has no beginning or end, that would be an attribute of God. You know, the only psalm that Moses writes in the Psalter is Psalm 90. In verse 2 of Psalm 90, Moses makes this statement about God. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That's what Moses says. Now, just a verse later is, is when he makes this comment, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. That's the same passage that Peter uses in his second letter 
to calm people down about the fact that God is on his throne and in control, and we shouldn't worry about the days of our lives. So this is what attributes are. It goes in line with what Tozer said in the quote that I read to you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If we understand God's attributes, there's a greater chance that we'll understand how to commune with God because we're looking up at him and we're seeing ourselves under him. Turning your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1, if we want to understand God's divine nature and his eternal power, Paul says here in the Romans text, you've got to go back to the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning. There's a lot of Bible study students here in our church family, and this may be familiar to you. Perhaps it's new. I want to just kind of step up and have you look in the creation account with me and just kind of lay out the framework of the creation account because I think there's something that we can learn from that. The first thing we see in Moses' account for us in Genesis chapter 1 is in the beginning God created. There are three times in the creation record that this word created is used. Verse 1, which I've just quoted to you, and then again in verse 21 and verse 27. The word created in Hebrew is the word bara. And it means exactly how we translate it. It means to create. If you choose to add a little more texture to it, it's his choice in the creation. It's his selection in the creation. But it's, it is used in this way in the creation record. The creation record says in verse 21 that God created heaven and earth. Our kids told us that this morning. It says in verse 27 that God created every living creature and man in his image. Now, if you go to the very end of that creation record, what's the outcome of God's creation? Well, it's another one of those interesting words that we talk a lot about. In this particular case, it's the word blessed. But this time, the first time we see the word blessed, God blessed, it is the word that's related to bara, but it's barak. It, it, and I think you know that name, so I'll just leave that there. The idea behind Barak is that you would bend your knee in honor, that you'd lift up yourself to praise uh, the one that had done whatever that work was. So we've got these bookends in the creation account. God created, and then God blessed. Now, Michael talked last week that the way we approach the Word of God is literally grammatically and hermeneutically. I want to spend our time this morning just kind of looking at the grammar of this for a minute. Well, God created and he blessed. It begs the question, how did he do it? How is it that he created and what is it that he blessed? And I want to suggest to you that the easiest way to look at that is to look at the grammar. There are four verbs that are used in the creation account that's translated in our English. God said, God saw, God called, and God made. And I want to just pose those to you for a second to see if it doesn't help us understand God's sovereignty in this creation. The word said is the word amar in the Hebrew language. It literally means, you know, breath came from God. He uttered it. He spoke it. It's used eight times in the creation account. One is a summary and then one with each of the days of creation. God said. Now, what's interesting about God said is This is before there is a beginning. 
Nothing exists except by what God says. He created by simply speaking, the text says. Now, if you look at every one of those times the word God said is used, you'll find at the end of the, whatever that creation record is, it ends with these words, and it was so. Which is a great way to capture how sovereign God is, that attribute that he has. Well, God saw is the second verb that's used in the creation record, and this is the Hebrew word ra'ah. Now, saw, when we translate it into English, we might miss this. It's, it's more than just I see it. It's I'm actually inspecting it for what it is. You know, I'm evaluating it that what, I, what, what I'm looking at is done properly. That's the idea behind it. In this particular case, this too is used seven times in the creation record. It ends with an interesting phrase as well. God saw what he had created, and it was good. Now, the last time, if you look in verse 31, you'll see he's looking back at the entire creation over the six days of creation, and it actually says it was very good. There's this little preposition put on that to further highlight that. Now, as we move on to this next verb, it is the verb called. That's the Hebrew word karaha. Now, that means he named things. He gave them names. Now, what I want to point out to you is it's only used three times in the creation record. And in this record, there's really an important kind of construct that we want to pay attention to. Look what it is that he named. He named day. He named night. He named the heavens. He named the dry land. And he named the seas. This is what God named. Now remember a little later in the creation record, God brings all the living animals before Adam, the first man, and he says, you name them. But when it comes to the actual creation of the earth itself, God is the one that names it. And then finally, God made, this is the Hebrew word that sweets. I like this word because it's the idea of a spark. I was a Boy Scout for a while when I was a kid, and they give you this little stick thing that's supposed to have this flint thing on it. You're supposed to take a rock and hit it, and somehow there's a spark that comes from it and starts a fire. I didn't figure that out, and I also only lasted about six months in the Boy Scouts and got thrown away. Uh, that's a story for another day. God sparks something. Well, what is it that God sparks? There's four times that this word made that's translated in English is used. He sparks the expanse. That's the Outside of the earth, what is around the earth? The two great lights, the sun and the moon. The animal species, it's called in the text the kinds. It's translated that way. And then finally, man. Here's a unique differentiation from a grammatical point of view. The text really emphasizes the finishing of creation in this. So I, I just paused here to simply observe that when we think about God's creation, I mean, this morning was a great time. I don't know this morning if you noticed that. I mean, I walked out of my house and it was in a cloud in the sky and the sun was bright and, you know, the leaves on the trees were glistening. God made all that. And if you pay attention, there are birds singing. I mean, the creation is an amazing thing. How often do we just walk by it and just miss it? This is the creation record. This should give us pause. It should cause us to think
Well, let's move on to Romans chapter 3 and see if we can't answer this question. So do, do my troubles really fade? Well, here's what I would ask you to look at in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, is the summary of what Paul had been describing that the Old Testament prophets had said. He used David, if you remember, and he used Isaiah when we were last together. Here's a quick rundown. Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's that Greek word phaneros, and it means that God made it known. How did God make his righteousness known? Paul says here is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, very much in line with what he says in Romans 1. But he identifies, why did he have to do that? He had to do it for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because they were not in alignment with God. There was no hope for them. And then Paul uses this word justified. They are justified as a gift by his grace. This is what he develops in chapters three through five, that there's no hope for man apart from God acting. That's what justification is. Well, look over in your Bibles at Romans chapter 5. Between chapters 3 and chapter 5, Paul lays out this idea of justification, how it is we come into a right relationship with God or we are reconciled to God. And he says this, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 5, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Exalt is not a word we use in our contemporary language today, but it's the idea that in our suffering, we somehow lift up our suffering in a way that's positive. Okay, but that's not an easy thing to do, is it? Paul says, we do. Well, how is it that we do that? Well, he says if you're in faith, remember what he said in chapter 3 already, he says that these sufferings that we have, this tribulation that we have, brings about a thing called perseverance. And I would just simply ask all of us the question, as we're going through the suffering in our life, and we come out the other end of that suffering and look back at it, do we not see God's work in it? And does it not change us? Paul says it does. He says it results in something called proven character. But not only do we persevere, but it changes who we are. We learn something from it, and it makes us a different person in a sense. And how is it that we have this proven character? He says it leads to hope. Well, what's the hope? The hope certainly isn't in us. He describes it here at the end of verse 5 as the love of God poured out within our hearts. And we get this because the Holy Spirit is in us to remind us of it. Well, these passages, chapter 3 through chapter 5, are what we call theologically special revelation. So we have God's creation, that's the natural revelation. But then we have the gift of grace in Christ, and that's the special revelation. And it takes these two things of God working together in our lives for us to truly understand who he is. Now, Peter says it this way, in his second letter, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, that's creation, and of Jesus our Lord, that's Christ and special revelation. He goes on in verse three of chapter one in his second letter and he says, seeing that his divine power, that's what we've been talking about, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In some way in our faith, we get the power of God so that we have everything we need to live a life that honors God. 
Verse 4, he says this, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. There is in some sense, Peter says, a way for us to actually participate in God's divine nature. Well, what is that? Well, in our faith, we escape the condemnation for our sin. And Peter says that's a component of God's divine nature. Later on in his letter, in chapter 8, verse 28, he makes a statement. Many of us have this verse memorized. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's something about knowing God that changes our life's circumstances. Now, I will confess I went down a rabbit hole when I was working on this hymn because when it started saying there were these 16 stanzas that got taken down to three, I had to go find the original poem because I was, I was a little curious about how the hymn itself is pretty light on special revelation. It's really heavy on natural revelation. So what I have here on the screen is the rest of his poem. I just observed these quick things. Sigh of relief, the poem writer had a really deep, deep understanding of that special revelation. He says, look at that second stanza, the beloved one is only son came, a pledge of deathless love. And then in that fourth stanza down, he says, for dear to God is the earth Christ trod, no place is this but holy ground. So this hymn writer did understand this idea of special revelation. Now I'm going to share with you as you're going to have Jason and Justin come back up to lead you in this hymn. I want to make a couple of observations. I have never written a poem in my life. My lovely wife, Patty, has never received it. I I actually, I got to tell you, her mom is my hero because she buys the coolest hard Hallmark cards for like every holiday. And you got to love Patty's mom, Ange. In the biggest, boldest, like, pen she can find, she underlines every stinking word, you know, in the cards. That's her version of writing a poem. Well, I've never written one, but here's what I did do. I started thinking about what does creation really mean to us? How how could we really think about this? And I took the longer version of Malpe's poem, and I came up with this. I don't know if it's of any help to you at all, but I would just ask you to think about it. Here's what I wrote for myself. I hear your creation all around me. I rest in the thought that everything is yours. I praise you as I experience every day. You speak to me everywhere I go. How about that as a place to start as it relates to your own worship of God? That's what Maltby outlines in his longer poem. Here's the second part I have. You alone rule, and I am yours. You are king, and I am glad for it. Your only son gave me a pledge of endless love, and my circumstances pale in the light of the hope I have in him. Leading into this holiday season, I would just suggest there's value taking a step back from the busyness of this life. Even as we consider some of the sadness that comes with it. 
and remember God is on his throne. And we can see it just by looking at the creation around us.